This week, Ken Rijok returns from Vietnam, goes to law school, and becomes an accidental money launderer when a friend asks him to clean $6 million for him. Billy Herbert represented uh, a lot of different types of uh, criminal activities, and he represented, uh, you know, the Irish Republican Army raises money in New England amongst uh, the faithful and launders it and, and uses, uh, used it at that time to buy weapons. There came a time when some money that was in an account became missing. He was blamed for it, although it turns out years later that it was MI6 that stole the money in the UK. One Sunday, he went out on his yacht with about 10 people, including a couple of his children, a bunch of Brits who were visiting, a couple other people, and they disappeared off the face of the earth. The boat was never, never, they were never located again. One day, about 15 years later, I'm giving a lecture. And somebody from DEA comes up to me and asks me a couple questions about a couple people. And then he tells me that uh, they know where Billy Herbert is. He and all these people are buried underneath a, a pool in Bastaire, the capital of St. Kitts. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Welcome, everybody, to Game of Crimes. I am your co-host, Morgan Wright, and I am here literally with my partner in crime. With the best co-host, Steve Murphy, but you can call me Murph. Call him the Murph Man. And everybody, thank you for joining us. I gotta tell you, Murph, episode 13, Dave Reichert, um, what a just an awesome episode. He's an awesome guy. We had a great turnout on Wednesday for the uh, Facebook Live. I think we'll do more of those. What do you think? Oh, yeah. That was fun. You know, and the fact that uh, people are willing to give us their time to come and spend a few minutes with us, thank you very much. We really appreciate that. Yeah, and look, we were hitting, you know, we've got 52,000 folks that are like that, like our page, and so we hit a lot of folks. So, And guys, appreciate all your questions. Just sorry we couldn't get to all of them. Some of them were, uh, you know, we, we got really good ones. And then some of them, uh, you know, we'll try and get with Dave later on and see, what, you know, what we can do. But anyway, we think we'll keep, if you guys like this, you know, put some comments on the Facebook page or just let us know that you want us to continue doing stuff like this so that we can help you. So we're here for you. We're here for you. Help me help you. Look, uh, let's just do a quick bit of housekeeping before we get into this today. So, folks, the Apple review, just those are so important for advertisers, for us to get visibility, and more importantly, so we can get more people involved with this podcast. So do us a favor. Head on over to Apple Podcast. It's magic. We don't know how it works or whatever platform you're on. Give us five stars. Tell us what you think about the show. We're trying to improve You know, every week, every episode. So your comments help us improve that and help us deliver really high quality stuff. It's magic. It's Disney. It's David Copperfield, David Blaine, all rolled into one. We don't know how it works. We just know that it does. Also, guess what? Head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got everything there, including, guess what, Steve? I'm sending you a link. I've actually got stuff starting to list on our new merchandise store. Woohoo! We've got some shirts. We've got some neat stuff coming out. No shower curtains. I'm sorry about that. No shower <laughs> yet, curtains. Yet. Not yet. But we'll we'll see what we can do. But we're going to have t-shirts and long sleeves, you know, and things like that. So we'll make sure that we get with you guys and uh, let you know all the stuff. But you'll be able to go to gameofcrimespodcast.shop, gameofcrimespodcast.shop, or just go right to our website and click on merchandise. It'll take you there. Just 
remember, it's never too early to shop for Christmas. That's right. Absolutely. You don't want to be caught at the last minute. No. Guy, and guys. 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 And also, especially us guys. Yeah. So, and also head on over to Patreon. It's where you need to be. We got a lot of great stuff there. Game of Crime or patreon.com slash game of crimes. We have got a ton of content on there. We've got more stuff coming out. We've got the Q&A. And by the way, I think we're going to make a command decision, Steve. Uh, we were going to do for our Narcometer review and the poll. We were thinking about doing Die Hard because it's one of the best movies ever. But as I said, and people have said, hey, man, that's more like a Christmas movie. So I think we may be moving Die Hard to Christmas and doing a review of the best Christmas movie ever. I think it's a great Christmas. idea. That's, yeah. a, that's a fantastic movie. Well, and look, we got feedback from our folks on Patreon that said, hey, we think we should do this in December. So I think we'll take their advice. Absolutely. So just gone over there. We've got several different levels, lots of good stuff. So make sure you head on over patreon.com slash game of crimes. If you just want to do a quick pause for the cause, just gone over to paypal.com. Use our email game of crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash game of crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you even more exciting content. But Steve, as always, there is a quick disclaimer. And that is. We, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously. But rarely, rarely, rarely do we take it serious ourselves. No. And, you know, some folks have mentioned that. It's like, you know, we spent a lifetime being serious about a lot of stuff and seeing a lot of stuff. So we're here to have a little bit of fun. But before we have a little bit of fun, guess what time <laughs> oh, it is, Steve? Lord. Here we go. What time is it? Well, it's t you should have seen the last meme when you got one right. Somebody posted a, 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 a gif of somebody <laughs> on Price it. is Right. You know, yay, I got one I, right. I was just curious how they got that video of me in my basement running around like that. Well, I, I, I was in your basement yesterday, Murph. <laughs> they don't want to see. Trust me. So guess what time it is, Murph? What time is it? It's time for Small Town Police, Police Blotters. All right. And guess what? We're starting off from with the story from my old stomping grounds. From a guy named Trevor Williamson. He's a corporal with Hayes, Kansas Police Department. I went to school at Fort Hayes State, situated right in the middle of Hayes, Kansas. And he he's the corporal in this story. He sent it to us. He said he thought this might be a good one for small-town police blotter. Great. He said you can't make this stuff up. So police chase from Hayes into rural Ellis County, and that's a DUI arrest. So, Steve, you know, we've seen these things happen. The police get into a chase because of a DUI suspect. But rarely does it happen because you're traveling going a direction, and the drunk passes you on the shoulder, going in the same direction. <laughs> that's not a drunk, that's an idiot. Yeah, well, he, they attempted to initiate a traffic stop, the vehicle fled, the pursuit was terminated, which in this day and age, they do a lot of that because of the dangerous and reckless driving of the sedan. Well, guess what, Steve? Guess what, what high tactic, high technology tactic they employed to find the driver? Uh, when he crashed somewhere. No, actually, it's when he got out and he ran. He was hiding in a field, and a dog went up and started barking, saying, "Here's where he is. Here's where he is. Here's where he is." <laughs> That's just a clear indicator that it's your turn to go to jail. It's your turn to go to jail. So, thank you to Corporal Trevor Williamson. Stay safe out there, brother. Great story from my and I know all of those areas. I lived. You know, I may have done a few things there. Anyway, well, yeah, with those things we don't talk about. That'd be an X-rated show. But you know, it, it, you know, it's bad when even the dog snitches you out. Yeah, man, <laughs> I love it. I'll tell you what. Well, in this case, snitches get treats, so they probably gave the dog a treat. Anyway, there Steve, this one's not so much a story as it is, just one of the dumbest headlines I've ever read in my life. This comes to us from the Express Times. The headline reads, Homicide victims rarely talk to police. 
Wow, there's a uh, talk about the obvious. <laughs> I mean, what can you say? <laughs> when so, how do they on those rare occasions when they do talk to police? Um, you know, it's one of those seances where they raise people from the dead, and you know, and they charge a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You know, I don't know. Well, you uh, know anyway. how it is. I mean, some of those dead bodies, when you move them, this is a little gross, so I don't mean to laugh about it, but you got to laugh about it when you're doing it. They will expel gases and make noises. So, you know, I guess you can interpret that to be communication. They tell the story, but not in the way that I think the paper meant. So, hey, but this next <laughs> one, though, I want to read you the narrative, and you tell me what you think the headline might be. Cops receive multiple calls about the sound of crashing furniture and a man screaming, I'm going to kill you. You're dead. Die, die. What does that sound like to you? Like maybe a domestic violence call? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Terrified neighbors call police to a domestic dispute, but find man alone screaming at a spider. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess, uh, damn, that must, was it a big spider? <laughs> I don't know, I don't know man. I've seen some big spiders, but... <laughs> You know, I know there's people that are afraid of my workout buddy, former retired Marine. You know, he's he's a mountain of a man, but he's like that. He can't stand a spider. No spiders, even if we're a Marine. Look, this next one, though, I like this one. The, the headline reads, man arrested for everything. <laughs> and the quote from the paper is, what did this man do, officer? And he replied, he just did He just did everything. I mean, there's car theft, possession of uh, a firearm by a felon. Possession of drugs. I mean, this guy had a whole list of charges, but I just love the headline. Man arrested for everything. <laughs> That's all inclusive. Just pick one. Pick several. <laughs> pick whatever you want. Oh, man. Well, hey, this this one, too. This just came in. I don't know. You saw this on the Facebook page, so hopefully you haven't, but... <laughs> oh, this must Flo be good. Florida woman arrested. And we have the Florida man stories. Florida woman arrested for masturbating outside a chicken shop twice in one month. She was, uh, okay. Outside the Popeye's Chicken, a Florida woman was arrested twice in one month after she was caught masturbating in public. She was arrested for pleasuring herself, first of all, outside of 7-Eleven in front of a young man and his nephew. Only a few weeks later, she was caught doing exactly the same thing, this time outside a Popeye's restaurant. She was naked. The police report revealed she showed no sign of being drunk or under the influence of drugs, and there was no evidence of mental health issues. Oh, geez. I tell you, you know, Popeye does have good chicken. Uh, I'm not sure that I would want to engage in an activity like that in their parking lot. That, that's, I've never heard of a female doing that. Well, if it had been a KFC, we might have had the tagline in their finger looking good. I don't know. Ba-dum-boom. <laughs> <laughs> Ba-dum-boom. Thank you very much. All right, and that leads us into what year was it, Steve? Oh, gosh. This will be rough. April 5th of mm -hmm. 1906, 1916, or 1926. Okay. Headline, tried to blow up house, dynamite placed under dwelling and set off by fuse. This is reported to us by the York Dispatch out of York, Pennsylvania, but it happened in Lexington, Massachusetts. An attempt to blow up a wooden building in North Lexington early today was partially successful. One corner of the house was damaged and a room on the first floor was wrecked. No one was injured, although the house was occupied by Frederick Define, his wife and three children, and four Italian lodgers. I guess it was important to put the ethnicity in there, the Italian. <laughs> the police found that a stick of dynamite had been placed under the corner of the house and set off by a fuse about 15 feet long. No trace of the person responsible has yet been discovered. Steve, what year was oh it? Gosh. April 5th, 1906. 1916 or 1926. The clock is ticking. 1906. Two in a row. How did you do that? <laughs> hey, all right, all right. How did you do that? I can't wait to see what videos come on the website this time. Woohoo! <laughs>
Well, I'm, I'm doing my happy you. dance. Doing my happy, happy dance. Don't do the happy dance, Steve, again. <laughs> Some <laughs> things are best left for a podcast. But hey, <laughs> speaking of doing the happy dance, we're doing a happy dance because we got another request to share with you a promo about another podcast we think you're going to like. And the nice thing about this podcast, I've listened to it, and I know the people who are involved in it. You know, I mean, I know of them. And it's another great true crime one. It's about the Long Island serial killer. When season one came out in March 2020, it drove into the lives. Look, Steve, the Long Island serial killer is suspected over a course of 20 years, like we just did with Gary Ridgway and, and Dave Reichert, the Green River Killer. But this time was about 10 to 16 victims. They found dismembered bodies, you know, all over Long Island, which is why the name Long Island serial killer. So the Chris Mass, who's the host, he leaned on a lot of, you know, never heard before stuff. So they were trying of, you know, they were interviewing people, developing uh, stories and storylines on potential people of interest. Well, guess what? In season two, Steve, of Lisk, the Long Island serial killer, Chris picks up right where he left off in season one, talking about a person of interest, which is a potential suspect, and then moving deeper into the investigation. Well, you know what, Chris, he gets with preeminent criminologists to discuss these cases, active law enforcement officials, renowned DNA experts, I don't know any of those, and of course, the family of victims in an attempt to uncover the truth. This is a pretty cool podcast. Both thoughtful and it's thought-provoking, Chris examines the techniques of people that will most likely one day help solve that case. So now season two is going to explore many of the unanswered questions that have left law enforcement professionals and web sleuths, that's you guys, confounded for years. Right. So, guys, so look for uh, season two of Lisk, the Long Island serial killer on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. And again, they're sharing one of our promos, so we're more than happy to share one of theirs. And good luck to you guys. Um, I think this is hopefully we can solve this case like they did with Gary Ridgway and the Green River Killer. We know it takes time. Yep. The Long Island serial killer podcast. That's right. So, hey, let's let's talk about this week, too, because this one is not a run and gun like Episode 9, El Chapo, you know, or a Dominic uh, Polifrone, you know, Episode 12, or even 13, you know, Dave Reichert. This one is more intellectually stimulating. I, you know, we had a good talk, and Steve, you actually found this guy for us. Tell us about Ken Rijok, the laundryman. Yeah, this is kind of cool. Uh, Ken is one of the original bulk currency, bulk cash money launderers living in South Florida, an attorney by profession, uh, don't want to tell his story to you. I want you to listen to it, but uh, it's, <laughs> you know, we like the kid with attorneys and, and we like to bust on attorneys is what we like to do. And so you can see what criminal path he chose, but then you'll see how it came full circle and came back around and he's going to tell you what all he's doing now. So uh, his book is out, The Laundry Man. He'll, we'll pitch that at the end of the show here, but this is a great listen. It's an eye opener. It's amazing how easy things were back in his day, but it's, uh, you know, now he's involved with more modern day stuff too, the complex money laundering schemes. And look, it's a story of redemption too, so we're always glad to see people who have strayed from the path and come back on. And guess what? We're, we're going to tease you with this a little bit, but guess what? Some of his stuff was actually included for use after 9-11 to investigate yeah. money laundering. So you yeah. got to stick tuned and find that out. So, Steve. And right now, thank you, Ken, for being on the show. This is this, I think you're going to enjoy this. I think you are, too. So, Steve, are you ready to play the biggest game of all, the game of crimes? Yes, sir. Let's all get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Bring on Mr. Ken. Well, everybody, welcome back to Game of Crimes. Steve, you know, we always said that when we did this podcast, we would get both sides of the story, right? We'd get people who enforced the law and people who broke the law. And that's what and makes us unique. That's what makes us unique. And 
we started, remember, episode two was George Young, which actually, as we get to talking to Ken here in just a second before I introduce him, there's going to be some parallels because George was operating in the same place at the same time that Ken was. And so, you know, a lot of this intersects, you're starting to see. So, hey, let's just do this. We want to welcome now somebody who's actually written a great book. It's called The Laundry Man. One of the original bulk cash money launderers worked with the cartels. You're going to find out he got caught. He did his time. But what he did after he did his time is also very interesting because he 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 took one for the team and then came back and started batting for the other team, you know, That's which awesome. was the law enforcement side. So, awesome. hey, Good Ken, job. we want to welcome you to the podcast. Welcome, Ken Rijak. Welcome, Ken. Thank you, Morgan and Steve. Our pleasure. Hey, well, Ken, where are you coming to us from today? Where are you at now? Uh, well, I live in uh, Miami, Florida, where I have lived since uh, I went to law school back in the 70s. Uh, one wow. of my favorite places. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We're going to find out. You guys are going to find out, too, during this episode. Uh, Steve and Ken actually have a couple things in common. <laughs> <laughs> we might have shared a beer not knowing it in the same not establishment at one right. point. <laughs> we're gonna, and this is the great thing about it. It's like, wait a minute, you were there, I was there. Well, the other thing, too, we're going to find out where uh, Ken uh, went to the Army out of and stuff. That's where I was born. So, hey, before we get into this, so, hey, Ken, we did, and everybody knows, when we do this, we always do a lot of research. We do a pre-call. And, you know, we read your book, The Laundry Man. Mm -hmm. And there's, I mean, there's just a lot of good information in there. But I think the thing everybody's, we have found everybody's interested in is, that you, you, you say you were the laundryman. You, you laundered money, uh, you know, for folks, especially involved in uh, drug trafficking. But the real question is, nobody gets into something just to get into that money launder. You kind of work into it. So you, when you were in college, uh, you started thinking about going to law school. When did you, in your family history, kind of predicted this a little bit, didn't it? You were kind of destined to go to law school, weren't you? Well, we do have uh, four lawyers in my uh, in my expanded family. Of course, the thing is that back in the 60s, you couldn't go to law school because of the war. I mean, I got to go to, I took the, the law board, but uh, once you're out of college, uh, you're at the, the, basically, you're at the mercy of the draft board. So back in the late 60s, I just went down and signed up. Yeah, you were 1A, right? So you were eligible for active military service. So you preempted getting drafted. You You joined up, right? That's right. Well, I come from a patriotic family. We're all uh, we're Russian Americans who came here a hundred years ago. So, needless to say, uh, we're pretty staunch anti-communists. <laughs> I got a little hiccup there. That's anti-communist, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, but but because the other thing too is we we just talked right before we started this too. Even your sister went back to law school at forty eight, you know, and ended up doing some death penalty work. So it's kind of like, it, it it's kind of like uh, you know, hey, your name's Rijok, you're from the family, you're going to be a lawyer. But let's let's talk about that. You go, you joined the army and you go to Vietnam. Tell tell us about that because you were in for a couple years, right? Right. Well, the thing is that. Uh, I went to graduate school after college, and of course, I lost my deferment right away. So I figured they're going to come and get me anyhow. I might as well just go down to Whitehall Street in Manhattan, sign up, and go ahead and do the time. So I enlisted in 68, and by the summer of 69, I was down there in um, Three Corps with the 1st Infantry Division, uh, where I was going to spend most of the 400 days that I spent in the service. Just to clarify one thing, Ken, when you say Manhattan, you're not talking about Manhattan, Kansas, are you? No, sir. New York City. <laughs> See, it, it being from Kansas, that Manhattan's a big deal. There's, we're, we're, you know, Kansas, K State was called the Little Apple. So uh, I, have hey, to but, I have uh, to give Morgan a hard time for being from yes, Kansas. Yes, he does. So. Hey, but uh, Ken, where did you go to basic training at? 
Oh, I did basic and advanced uh, in Fort Dix. So I was close to home. And yep. um, after that, I was slated to go to, to uh, uh, officer candidate school. And then I found out I was going to have to spend an extra year in the military. And I opted out knowing I was going to go right to Vietnam. But that was fine with me because I was trying to be on the fast track to get in and out of the service. And I took the uh, basically I took the risk of going to Vietnam, which I frankly it worked out for me. The, one, yeah, the beginning of many risks that you took. <laughs> the beginning of many. Yeah, because uh, one, uh, like we said, there's always some connection. So uh, my dad was both a World War II and a Vietnam vet, but I was born at Fort Raleigh, home of the 1st Infantry Division, the big red one. And uh, that's where, when he retired out of the Army, that's where we ended up at, was back at Fort Riley. So it's kind of like, I, I remember those days of the 1st Infantry Division. When he was over there, he was actually at Fort Carson. He was in an um, artillery unit at that time. But, you know, everybody, you know, the, the late 60s were the eras of Vietnam. And it's because you had that degree, you could have gone to OCS, but like you said, you would have spent another year. So when you did go over to Vietnam, where did you end up serving at? Well, I, I was sent to the 1st Division, so I ended up in a armored cab unit. And, of course, um, you know, most people don't know this, but only 4% of the enlisted men who served in Vietnam actually had a college degree. Wow. So uh, when I got to Vietnam, I found out that um, I was going to wear a lot of different hats. I was going to go out into the field, uh, and I was going to write combat stories for what we used to call Stars and Stripes. Yeah. Cool. Um, I was also going to go out there and uh, assist, unfortunately, with the um, basically what we used to have uh, services for people who had passed on. And I then spent almost all of my time at the 1st Division out in the field uh, with an operations unit, with a bunch of radios, uh, with a bunch of officers, uh, assisting in directing the war. Uh, also, while I was there, I ended up uh, as a kicker. Some of you might remember what that is. I used to go up in these little light observation helicopters with a huge load of Chu Hoi leaflets, surrender leaflets, overfly enemy-held area and kick out the door leaflets which say, if you surrender, I'll give you $1,500 for your AK. Wow. So there's still warrants out for you for littering in Vietnam back then those days. You know that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and how, how successful were those leaflets? Well, a lot of people did uh, Chu Hoi actually come over to the government side. God only knows what happened to them when the war was over. But after about nine months, the 1st Division went home, and I had no in interest, frankly, in, in the stateside army because that's shined boots and everything else, which is too strack for me. So I in extended my tour, and I went to the 25th Division just in time for the Cambodian invasion. Which, by the way, one of my nitpicks, I was listening to— uh college football last year and they it was the army navy game and somebody was talking about the 25th mountain division it's not the 25th mountain it's the 25th entry and their name is tropic lightning so we had to we had to clear that up with the i had to write a i had to write a, tr a tweet to correct it but you almost didn't make it into the army because as grown up as a kid you you had to wear a lot of braces on your legs, right? You had to wear a lot of hardware. I had I, yeah, I had I had a hundred percent flat feet, so I was wearing metal arches uh, until I hit puberty, and always wearing things. I I really didn't have to go, but frankly, uh, I didn't think it was the sort of thing that I could opt out of. 
and that's what kind of sets up the contradiction because that's where we're going to get into is here's somebody mm-hmm. who comes from a very patriotic family. I mean, you joined. Look, I I was young back then, but I remember the draft. I remember seeing uh, my dad was like over in Vietnam for a year and a half. You know, a lot of things going on. Not a lot of people volunteered. Uh, you know, so for you to volunteer and do that, it's kind of like a contradiction in terms with your later life. But we just wanted to kind of set the stage for that is that you had a lot of reasons you didn't have to go, but you still chose to go. That's correct. And um, I went to the when I got to the 25th Division, I went to and I was lucky enough uh, because my military occupational specialty had changed from infantry to cavalry. So I ended up with another armored unit. Uh, and uh, after a, a little more than 400 days, I came home and uh, my parents had in the meanwhile moved to Miami Beach from New York. Why did they move? Uh, my father, uh, I think he wanted a little bit of a change, and we have family in Florida. So, you know, back then, everybody was listening to the commercial that said, come on down. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't the Mi- the then was not the Miami of today, right? That's correct. The Miami of the, of the 1970 was a, a totally different place. And I was lucky enough to go over to the law school and the graduate school, and I was admitted to the law school on the first day of orientation that summer. So you came back from doing your time over in Vietnam. You served. You came back. You, you got out of the military, right? Your uh, your enlistment was up. And then how long between the end of your enlistment and law school was it? Were you talking about just days, weeks? How fast was that? Maybe a week. Well, <laughs> you didn't waste any time. <laughs> but everybody in my class were all vets. A whole bunch of them had all gotten out of the service just like me. Now, were you able to use the GI Bill to go through law school? Uh, well, back then, all they did was give you three hundred dollars uh, a month. They didn't cover your tuition. So, fortunately, I, I was able to handle it. But the point is that uh, it was a bit of a uh, an adjustment because when you're used to being out in the bush, and then all of a sudden you're sitting in an office with a whole bunch of people of both sexes, it's a little bit uh, unusual. <laughs> a little bit unusual. So, um, did, did you have? I mean. I know you kind of said you come from a family of lawyers. Did you want to do anything else, or did you just figure, just kind of like, hey, I better join the army and get this out of the way? Did you feel a lot of family pressure to become a lawyer, or was that, did you really want to be one? Well, I I had gone to uh, one of those vocational testing groups at uh, New York University, and that's what they basically told me was, you really should think about being a lawyer. So that's why I took the law boards while still in school, because I figured that somewhere down the road, if I got lucky, I could get in. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, was that still called the LSAT back in the days, or did they have a different name for it? No, that's correct. Law school admission test. Okay. Well, and, and apparently the, your score was good enough is that even though you went over of what, you were gone for probably at least, what, two years between the time you took the LSAT and got into law school? Yes, that's correct. But I, I was luck, lucky enough. I, I'd imagine that I probably got in because at the last minute, some people went to some other law school, and I was just, I was there and I was available. Wow. So you went to the University of Miami. Now, being a Notre Dame guy, I got to tell you, we had some contentious football games, you know, back in the 90s, the 80s and the 90s. Now, the Canes had a little bit of a tough time this weekend, too. Yeah. Well, hey, football. Notre Dame prevailed, though. So uh, against Florida that. State. Yeah, man. <laughs> I, we were up late last night. No, I'm sorry, Ken. Quick cover. <laughs> we're, we're, we're recording this actually on Labor Day, and this is going to come out uh, Monday the 13th. And uh, But I'm telling you, I didn't. I normally don't stay up that late, but we're up till midnight. I'm almost like yelling at the TV. And then when they missed the field goal, Florida State did, and Notre Dame kicked it. It's like victory Irish. Sorry. Quick divergence there, Ken. It is <laughs> It is college football season. We're back in the swing of things. Yes, so, sir. We love college football. Were you a big football. football fan at all, though, Ken, when you were back there? Did you go to games? Did you do anything, you know, with the college life? 
I was just always watching the games, obviously, because there, there were a lot of fans here. And by the way, my daughter's going to FSU. Oh, well, they actually will have a pretty good team, I think, this year. I was, we were supposed to beat the pants off of them, and it was too close for comfort, let me tell you. So anyway, go Irish. So let's move on to, uh, so you go, you get into law school. What areas do you, and this will factor in later into what you do, uh, what areas did you decide to focus on or what areas did you end up focusing on in law school? Well, I'm interested in corporation securities and banking law because, frankly, that's uh, the bread and butter of most Miami lawyers, or at least it was back then because Miami wasn't really an international city to the extent that it is today. Back then, while they had a lot of Latin American business, they didn't have all that European and international business. People didn't get in and get on a plane and fly in from Hong Kong to do business here. It was basically things coming from the South. and. Um, I was always interested in civil practice anyway. Now, at that time in Miami, was the mob, uh, was it still mobbed up during that time? Was there, did you see a lot of things with organized, traditional organized crime? No, frankly, uh, you know, the the organized crime was uh, pretty much relegated to areas of Miami Beach and a little bit up in Broward County, but they weren't really that influential. I mean, they might have owned a lot of real estate in Florida. But uh, they were not an ever-present, uh, uh, you know, threat to public security. Of course, by 1970, uh, the narcotics trade had exploded. Yeah, and that kind of that wasn't that originally for a lot of the original um, gangsters, the OGs, you know, the original organized crime guys. They they didn't want to be involved in drugs. You know, that to them that was like a no-no. Uh, they did their traditional racketeering, extortion, you know, uh, things like that. So that kind of opened up the area down in, in Miami. So how long did it take you to get through law school? Well, I, I went through with the standard uh, three-year program. And of course, uh, I worked part-time too, because I wanted to get my hands dirty, my feet wet, and realize what it's like. Because of course, going from being in the military to being a student again is kind of like a step backwards. How did you make that transition, too? Because I, I know um, I, I spent six years in the reserves. Like my dad was World War II, Vietnam, you know, 28 years all total. Got a lot of friends that are transitioning out. And there's a lot of people who have an adjustment. I mean, you're kind of in unique where you go to sitting in a classroom where it's kind of nice and safe after coming from, you know, the bush and, uh, you know, being in the jungle to where people were getting shot and killed and people trying to kill you on a daily basis. How did that how did that transition affect you when you went into law school? Did, did you transition easily? or did it take some adjustment? Uh, it, it, you know, it was almost as if you had uh, attention deficit disorder because sitting down, remember, in law school, they use what's called the casebook method. They don't teach you the black letter law. They make you extract it from the cases, which means you learn what's called issue perception. And the only way that you learn issue perception is through the experience of reading all of these cases in all the different subjects and learning what the issues are and then presenting them. So, yeah, it was it was rather difficult for the first year because, frankly, um, your mind wanders. And uh, the the other thing, too, is you need to understand that I'm coming from a place where we're 90 to 100 percent degrees of, of heat. And coming to Miami, uh, it just uh, it was like the same thing quantified. So here's the thing. You're thinking that you're in the same environment, even though you're in a peacetime, non-threatening one. So there are always uh, major adjustment issues. But a lot of Vietnam vets gravitated towards Florida because they got where they really liked warm weather and they didn't want to go back to that snow. Yeah. Yes. Guess right. where Murph's moving. Murph, I'm where are you moving? Moving to Florida. 
<laughs> Next month. Another, another snowbird headed down that way. That's right. Permanent relocation. Um, so during that time, Ken, did you have any exposure to, to uh, you know, so it's, it's the 70s, right? So you're going to law school. You graduate, what, 73? Yes. What, did you have any, uh, did your life intersect at all with drugs at that time, cocaine, marijuana, anything like that? I mean, be in college and stuff, but other than casual stuff, did you see anything major going on? No, I really, I, I was totally away from that whole world. I mean, gr- growing up in the 60s, of course, everybody was involved in casual marijuana use. And we always thought that, you know, personal use really shouldn't be a felony. But, uh, of course, that's a morality issue. But, uh, no, uh, I, I kept away from everything. And, you know, when you're, when you're a full-time student in a job that makes you learn and read, read, read until you're blue in the face at night— um, you don't have a really big social life. Yeah, and you go from being like, uh, for folks that are not from the military, but you got like 11 Bravo and infantrymen, you know, 11 Delta. You go from a thing to where it's you have a high level of alertness all the time to where uh, it's basically like from 100 to almost zero. So how did you manage to get through law school? I mean, a lot of folks, especially coming back, they didn't know, they didn't understand PTSD at that time. They didn't understand what it really took to transition people out of the military into civilian life. So how do you think you did during those three years in law school? Do you think you adjusted well or did you have issues? Well, uh, the only way that I could get through it was to really structure my life. I had to specifically earmark certain hours for studying. I had to specifically earmark uh, any downtime, but uh, it was a struggle. I I have to admit it, and that, you know, I was not graduating at the top of my class. You know, it was was from time to time uh, uh, a little bit of, uh, I had to push myself to do these things, but uh, fortunately, uh, the the climate at the school was such that they were very encouraging. Uh, The associate dean was a retired admiral. Who, who was from Puerto Rico and who'd gone to the Naval Academy like back in 1939 uh, wow. and who and who I knew through uh, one of my lawyer cousins. So uh, it was a it was a little bit of an uphill battle. But fortunately, I got out the door with the paper, with the degree. <laughs> yeah, with your degree. And uh, how long after that did you sit for your bar exam? Uh, that summer, just in the, in the last next month or two. So, um, I think I, I had a pretty good grounding of it. Uh, people always used to bug me because I went to the movies the night before the bar exam. <laughs> and why? Just to relax. And, and you pass it the first time? Oh, yes. Very good. My, uh, I have to give out just a quick shout out to my nephew, Joel Mason. He is the new Clay County attorney. He went to Washburn University Law School, uh, and uh, that's he's the he's the local county attorney, a small little county of about five six thousand people. But he's also got his small little practice with another firm and stuff. So it's like him. He was he was sweating it, and I said, "Dude, don't sweat it. Just you know this stuff. Just go in and take the test." You know, too many people fail because they overthink it as opposed yeah. to, to, you know, give the obvious. Sometimes it's the obvious answer. Yeah. They let <laughs> others like, they let others stress them out before the test because they're stressed. That's right. Misery loves company. So, Ken, you passed the bar. Now, tell us, you'd, you'd, like you said, you had been doing a little bit of work getting your feet wet. So did you stay with the same uh, cousin, right? And yeah, go to work I did. For him? I, I stayed there for several years. Uh, and, and then I went, went to work for a much smaller firm. And then I went out on my own. But, uh, but, but during that time that you were there, that's when you met your wife, right? When you're working for your cousin, your, your uh, first wife? Uh, that's right. That's right. I met my first wife uh, socially. 
uh, was she, but was she, how, how did you meet her? Uh, I think I just met her through a mutual friend uh, in town. But it was, uh, you know, your typical uh, 20-something romance. <laughs> so you and guys got happened? married. In, <laughs> yeah, you got married in 76. So you lasted three years. What happened? Well, about about nine months after we got married, uh, my wife's mother was uh, hit by a car in Manhattan and uh, took quite a bit of time to die. And uh, after that, uh, I'm afraid my wife basically survived on uh, on drugs for the next three years. Her Exa father was a pharmacist, right? Yeah. So, you know, it was better living through chemistry. So uh, that unfortunately was it was uh, it was destined to fail because. You can't have a relationship where one person is uh, is always buzzed. Was it anxiety meds, or or do you remember? Uh, I don't know. It was just it was it was so many things that uh, I lost count. That's hmm. a shame. Yeah, and so that's interesting. You said Manhattan was her family also from New York as well. Is that how you met? It's through social contacts that way. No, no, no. She would she was living in Florida, going to college, and uh, they were from New Jersey. You know, and that's we we've seen, and in fact, this kind of history repeating itself because we see a lot of the same things now with the opioids and the other stuff. Right now, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people are getting addicted. You know, there's a lot of issues. So really, it's kind of like not a whole lot. It's just the way that maybe some of the drugs have changed, but the problems really haven't changed over the last fifty, sixty years. Right. Well, some some people have an addictive personality, and uh, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. Yeah. Well, speaking of addictive personality, you, I mean, you were kind of Mr., you know, just, you know, you, you were Mr. Plain, you know, like Plain Jane, you know, type of guy. You were doing this law and corporate work, and but you ended up getting the divorce. Now, had you not got the divorce, would your life have ended up the same, or was it because of the divorce that set you on this new uh, trajectory? No, it was, I guess you might call me the accidental money launderer because because of the divorce, I end up moving out like everybody does when you're getting divorced. And I was looking for a place to stay. And uh, I knew these two waitresses that worked in a nightclub and they said, hey, Ken, you can move in with us down the street. That's a new movie title, The Accidental Money Launderer. And who ends up moving in with two waitresses? Now, what was the name of this club? It had a unique name. Oh, that's right. It was Menage, which was the, the ultimate club to go to uh, on Brickell Avenue in Miami uh, in the 1980s. As a matter of fact, I actually lived in that condo building uh, at the time. And so it was real easy for me to just go downstairs and uh, meet my new friends. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you lived literally over a nightclub? Uh, well, uh, the, uh, it's a 30-story building, but the point is that the, um, the condo association decided to allow a nightclub to move into the, the lower lobby, which, and it became hugely successful, and it became the go-to place back in the, uh, in the late 70s and the early 80s for uh, the whole cocaine crowd. Let's say it's the infamous Club Menage. <laughs> the infamous Club Menage. So th that kind of led you, that led you, uh, you strayed, that, that allowed you easily to stray from the path of being the good, you know, bookworm, you know, attorney, you know, nose to the grindstone. So how did, but I'm just curious, how did you, how did, was, it didn't sound like initially, at least from reading the book too, that it was is sexual with the two waitresses. It's just kind of like, we need a third. It's like, uh, what was that, yeah. what was that sitcom uh, from the 80s? Um, yeah. With uh, what's her name Summers was the yeah Suzanne Summers and stuff yeah uh, but 
uh, Three's Company. Here we go. Three's Company. Three's Company, yeah. Was it just a, a thing of convenience? Because I'm sitting here thinking of like a dude, you know, in his 20s, you know, not attached or anything. It's kind of like, man, this would seem like the ultimate dream for a kid down there. Oh, no, it was totally platonic. We were just friends, and we'd go up and party in Fort Lauderdale, and uh, that's how I started getting involved with the, you know, frankly, uh, I was a real straight arrow. And then I find out these people are involved in this uh, all-night partying thing, and they're also involved in uh, a lot of cocaine consumption. When did you start uh, the drug habit? Only when I started living with those girls. Yeah, women well, will do that to you, won't they? Oh, boy, I'm going to hear oh, about that comment. We're going to get some comments on that. Yeah, way to go, Murph. Always stirring the pot. Um, what was it like your first time? I mean, did you have any trepidation when somebody offered you some Coke? Or w walk us through that. No, it's just a very euphoric feeling. And uh, uh, somebody once said it's kind of like flying to Paris for breakfast. So the point is that... Uh, uh, Outside of the hangover, it was uh, it was at that point uh, something that I didn't mind doing. Remember, I have no responsibilities. I have stopped working totally. I don't have any wife or children, and I'm living the high life with all these uh, Miami Vice types. And it's like 1979, 1980, and I'm having a ball, and I'm not even thinking about the future. Where were you getting your money from? Uh, I still had a little bit left over. From, from practicing, from practicing, right. yeah. Uh, but 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 that puts you at risk too, right? Because you talk about at some point, um, the bar association kind of says, "Hey, Ken, you got to get with it." We're getting complaints from clients. Um, I mean, you, you got to either shit or get off the pot, right? Yep, they had they said you got to get back to work. So what'd you do? Well, um, at uh, frankly, I just uh, found a lawyer friend who had an office that I knew and who lived also in the same building, and he said come on and practice in my office. So I was able to go back and uh, become a productive member of society pretty quickly. How long did it take you to build back up, you know, your practice to point to where you had a sustainable income? Uh, well, Miami was, uh, you know, expanding exponentially, so it really didn't take very long. But that's the point when everything changed, because that is when one of these two girls goes up to a, uh, a motorcycle rally in Ohio and crashes and falls off the bike, breaks her legs, and calls up and says, Hey, Ken, I have a broken leg, and I'm not coming back to the apartment. I'm going to go um, and stay with a friend of mine until my leg heals. And she gave me the address um, in Miami's Shenandoah community, which is pretty much of a Latino community just south of downtown. And I went over to see this guy who she was staying with. And I'm like sort of looking at myself because here's a guy who's my age, served in Vietnam, but this case uh, with the Marines, wounded at Quezon, and he's a Spanish teacher. But he's a gringo in a Spanish town, which is really weird because the majority of the people in Miami weren't even born in this country. So right. I, I, I ask him a little bit more, and he says, well, the point is that my parents were both missionaries from uh, St. Louis. And when I was a very small child, we moved to Oriente province, which is the easternmost province of Cuba. And I grew up basically uh, in the whole Latin culture. So I'm not only bilingual, I'm totally bicultural. And after I served um, in Vietnam, he said that uh, his father had become a minister in Miami, and he moved to Miami. Uh, but... Uh, he seemed to always be like a, a, a round peg in a square hole. 
because he was a Spanish teacher, but he was only working a very little amount doing consulting, so to speak. And, yeah, and, hold on. Yeah, consulting, right? That's kind of a euphemism, too, because uh, you, he had a lot of money and a lot of girlfriends. And aren't you at some point going, dude, either I got to get that consulting job or what is it you're really doing? Well, I, I, I guess it was don't ask, don't tell. But uh, <laughs> a, a few months later, when I actually needed another place to stay, he said, Ken, move in with me. I've got a two-bedroom house. I'm, I live alone. And uh, he had a house, uh, a leftover house from the old Pan American flying boat days, still had the Pan Am sticker out front, and it was a wooden shotgun shack with uh, a, a real fireplace and all sorts of memorabilia all over the walls from all of these places in Latin America where he had had adventures you know, in the jungle, at all sorts of exotic places. And um, we just kind of got along very well because he was having a lot of parties and I was a single guy. And this went on for quite a while. So tell us about this, because this now starts the trajectory uh, into your career, uh, or at least for quite a few years of doing money laundering. But you were at his house for quite a while. Tell us about some of the coming and goings of some of the uh, business people, as they might say. You know, again, I'm using my fingers with air quotes. You started seeing some activity at night, right? Yeah, well, you know, there was a there was a moment where I finally put it together because when you have businessmen from another state coming in the front door uh, with satchels and Colombians coming in the back door with something else. Uh, it's obvious what it is. Why my, my roommate's a broker of illicit substances and he's frankly, he's the middleman between Colombians bringing cocaine in from Latin America and Americans and Canadians and Europeans who were of course wholesaling it. Yeah. And law enforcement, we call that a clue, a clue. Yeah. How long did it take? I mean, you were there for six months, but how long into your stay there did it take to click? How long was it? the Because obviously you're the I think you said in the book, you're laying there in bed one night, you know, and there's this knock on the door. Yeah, well, I, I realized what had happened in the first week. Uh, okay. you know, it, was, it was a, it was a, you know, it was a wake up call. But then again, at that point in my life, at any other time, I probably would have just packed up my stuff and left. But in this case, uh, I'm living in Miami in 1980, which is all freewheeling. I'm freewheeling and I'm not going to make a judgmental call because I grew up in a culture where people in my age said, well, marijuana shouldn't be illegal. So I'll just let everything else go. Hey, let me ask you, Ken. So that first time, did you speak Spanish? Uh, fortunately, I grew up in New York. So, and also when I served in Vietnam, there were a number of people there whose English was rather weak. So, my Spanish was uh, fairly good, even at that early point in my life. So, when these guys came in, were they speaking English or Spanish? Did you go out and listen to them? Did you oh, stay ab- in your absolutely. room? Oh, I became I became their their new friend. I mean, here I'm the roommate. And uh, I'm a curiosity to them. Because you've got Bob's blessing now, so you're being included in the group. Exactly. And, and I'm obviously uh, also a Vietnam veteran because uh, the way that I decorated my room probably would have gotten me uh, arrested by the Metro Public Safety Department because it was just loaded up to the gills with Vietnam memorabilia, weapons, flags, everything else. Well, what, what'd you, so tell us about that. Uh, what did you have on the walls? I mean, what would you bring back from Vietnam? Uh, I didn't bring back much of anything, but I was fortunate enough to go find a lot of things so that it wouldn't be an issue. I mean, anything I brought back, I, I think I gave away back in the, in the the when I came home. But the point is that uh, uh, the whole thing was done in olive drab. Uh, I used uh, uh, 
camouflage to decorate the place. I had a uh, huge uh, flag of Vietnam on the wall, and inside the closet I had a Marine Corps Eagle Globe and anchor, and I had um, uh, a number of firearms, including uh, some uh, which other people had brought back from Vietnam. And, yeah, probably, and probably every bayonet in the world. <laughs> All I can think of is a scene out of Apocalypse Now with exactly. Robert Duvall. <laughs> I can smell of the smell of napalm in the morning. I can just see Ken waking up going, I love the smell of napalm in my room. Uh, I'm thinking that's what a cheery decor to have in your room there. <laughs> now, did you low crawl out of your room to go eat breakfast when, you know, when the Columbians would come over, Ken? Well, I always wanted to go and meet new people. So, you know, that's lawyer, <laughs> lawyers are like that. Yeah. So, uh, but during the time that you were there, did you, did you, were you asked to get involved? Did you get involved or were you just more just of an observer and uh, just, you know, basically, uh, you know, part of the furniture, you know, that everybody accepted, hey, you're just, you know, you're one of the gang. Yeah, I, w- I was just pretty much a, a, a hanger on. But did you did you want to get involved at that point, or were you just more like, hey, you know, this is cool. I'm just going to hang out and see what's going on. No, I really had didn't have any interest in uh, getting involved in that thing. Remember that uh, at that point, the state of Florida had a 15 year minimum mandatory law for 400 grams of cocaine. Yeah, sounds like a good law to me. <laughs> well, um, uh, so if we put that in perspective, right? So one ounce is twenty-eight grams. Twenty-eight point so three. Yeah. So it doesn't take. Well, the, and there's the money launderer wow. because we're wow. going to talk about how you got paid one time too. <laughs> hey, he, he got. He didn't always get cash for his services. Uh, so you know, twenty-eight point three ounces or twenty-eight point three grams. You know, for an ounce. So it didn't take much to add up to four hundred grams. That's true, and that's what you call exposure. Yeah. So were you more concerned about it just simply from your law license standpoint or from a morality? Because you, you keep talking about morality, you know, um, were you concerned about it more from a morality, what it might do to your parents? Or were, were you more concerned about it from your livelihood? No, I, I just didn't really, I, I wasn't really interested in, uh, in going down to the Dade County Jail as an inmate. So yes, my, 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 my future. Yes. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people want to spend time in, you know, Miami Dade. Uh, yeah. That's that's not a good that's not a good jail system down not there. Not in lockup. No. no. Hey, so but you you were there for six months. So what led to you moving out? Because this now starts the transition. This starts where you now start getting. Um, we're, we're now closing in now on the launch of your career in money laundering. So, but you were in there for six months. What prompted you to move out? Uh, well, I. Um uh, frankly, uh, I found myself a new girlfriend who happened to have been a police officer. Yeah, this is, this this is, is going to yeah. get interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so you're hanging around people and it's, we're not just talking marijuana. We're talking about guys who are dealing Coke, a lot of cash going back and forth. Did you now, was she a friend of this guy? Cause the, the guy that you were living with originally was Robert Miller. I know in the book you changed names, but we, we all agreed beforehand that it was okay to use the real name. So Robert Miller, was this an acquaintance of Robert's from a prior time? It was a, it was an old Bible school classmate of his. The girl I, I was. See a, <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. You know, my, my dad was a minister and I guess I just missed out on which way I was supposed to go. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, but but so what? Did you not have any reservations at that point about having a girlfriend as a police detective? No, I, I, she bought into that whole "don't ask, don't tell" mentality too. Remember, we we're all children of the '60s at the time, and uh, 
you know, there were a lot of police officers in Dade County that uh, would wink and nod and, frankly, you know, wouldn't choose to enforce minor criminal offenses. I mean, if you did that, you'd probably have to spend your whole life in court. Man, you'd get bogged down at just the paperwork. You know, trust me. I trust me. I know that part. But um, but so, but really, a lot wasn't happening because you went back and started practicing law. But then you started getting some interesting referral clients, didn't you? Well, all these people that I had met over the six months that I lived in Bob's house started coming to me for routine, seemingly routine civil matters. Um, I'm buying a business. I'm selling my house. I'm buying an airplane. I'm selling my boat. I need a corporation. Well, if it's strictly civil matters, there's nothing wrong with all those. But remember, these people were all in the drugs trade. So these were all aspects that they were using as part of their covers. And so explain that real quick, too, because they were using it as their covers. But the the, the real concern, right, is hiding the proceeds from the IRS, right? Right. Well, that was I hadn't gotten to that yet. But what they were doing was they were all running seemingly legitimate businesses for one purpose or another. Uh, usually as fronts so that they would have an excuse for uh, showing up and doing whatever it was they were really doing behind the closed doors. And it gives them an avenue to hide their illegal gotten gains. That's right. And as Steve and I have talked about before, and as I learned from doing cases, the IRS doesn't really care where your money comes from as long as you pay tax on it. As long as you pay tax on it. They're happy campers, right? It's when you don't pay. That's why Al Capone went to jail. He didn't go to jail for extortion and racketeering and killing people. He went to jail for tax evasion. And the states are like that, too. <laughs> yes, they are. So so how long you started getting all these folks coming in? Did you know immediately what was going on with these folks that a lot of this, did they ever tell you directly? Or as a lawyer, did you kind of keep a buffer between don't ask, don't tell, don't tell me what it is. I'll just help you set up legitimate businesses. Or did did some point in time, did you come to learn because they told you directly, this is all illegal stuff and I need help doing it? Well, it was a little bit of both. Some of them would flat out candidly tell you, and others would kind of keep most of their uh, personal business to themselves. But then there came a time when one person actually came in the door, somebody that I knew rather well by then, and said, listen, you know, I need to launder $6 million because I just moved all sorts of pot from Jamaica to the United States. So uh, tell so, us, how was your yeah. reaction? <laughs> <laughs> was that an eye-opener for you? Absolutely. It was, that, was a, that was a moment of truth, because at any other time in my life, I would have thrown him out the door and probably forgotten about the whole thing. What tempted you? I think it was the, the fact that uh, I had been living a rather mundane life, uh, which is a, like night and day from spending time in the jungle in Vietnam mm-hmm. and wondering if you're going to get blown up the next week. And uh, I think that uh, not having any other uh, obligations other than to myself, I just decided, um, why not? Look, I'm in Miami. It's Miami Vice. It's open season on everything and anything. So why don't I participate? Were you looking for a thrill? Were you looking for adrenaline? Or were you looking to fill maybe the hole that uh, being in Vietnam left with you? Because, I mean, once you've kind of lived on the edge, once you've, you know, you've been out there, you know, at the tip of the spear, like you say, sitting at a desk, sitting behind a desk doesn't quite give you the same feeling, does it? Yeah, I was I was interested in risk taking, no doubt about it. The, while the money was, of course, important, no, it was not about that. It was just about tweaking the system because I had been up against the Viet Cong and the NVA for four hundred days, and maybe now I got a chance to be one of the Viet Cong myself. 
Well, because I want to, that's, um, you walked right into my trap. Thank you very much, Ken, because I did read your book and I pulled a couple <laughs> quotes out. And one of them, you say it was more about beating the system than making myself rich. Why did you want to beat the system? What, what was it that said, I, Ken Rijok, now am going to beat the man? Well, I think a lot of Vietnam veterans uh, came back realizing that uh, while we certainly may have won a lot of the battles, uh, we didn't end up prevailing in the war, and we wondered if it was the politicians that were involved in it, were there other factors, were there other issues. I mean, years later, I find out that the Central Intelligence Agency admits that the North Vietnamese Army was three times bigger than our infantry in the field, but they just got their estimates all wrong. So we ended up losing a lot of people, whether they were killed or wounded, which probably shouldn't have happened. And at that point, I was probably very uh, jaded about the fact that uh, here we had 55,000 Americans dead and nobody seemed to be caring about it. Also, remember that Ronald Reagan has become president. And whereas my uh, political leanings are right in the middle, uh, his were decidedly more to the right than mine. So uh, there I am looking to tweak the system. And I guess that was an opportune time, and I was uh, ripe for the picking. Well, so if somebody came in and said, hey, I want to launder $6 million, I got to tell you, I'd crap my pants, you know. So how did you keep a straight face, and how did you go, how did you approach laundering $6 million? And who? Uh, and let me ask you, who was this guy? What did he do? I mean, as a smuggler, you told us that, but how did, how, how did you do that? Well, he was... Uh, he was a, a, a boy grown up as the son of a director in Hollywood, California, who had gone to sea at an early age and become a ship's captain, running a, a route between Cape Haitian and Grand Turk and Miami, who saw all of these uh, mariners getting rich and decided that he was going to start smuggling pot in from uh, Jamaica. And um, he ended up being the, uh, the captain of a research vessel that was owned by a uh, a prominent uh, member of the Republican Party, and he used that as a cover in which to smuggle pot into the United States. <laughs> yeah, well, and let's use the name. Go ahead, Steve. <laughs> I was going to say we try to keep politics out of it, but this is funny. Oh wow! <laughs> well, yeah. Now, and the other thing too is we we like I said we talked beforehand. We're going to use the names. This guy's name was Michael Clinton, which is ironic a little bit. Michael Clinton yeah. Gruner, um, and like you say, but so he, what you're saying is Gruner was doing a legitimate business, you know, building, trying to build up a business, but he saw all of these other people getting rich and he decided, Hey, time for me to get a cut. Yeah. The greed took over. Yeah. That's a greed is an ugly green monster. Boy. And, and it, it needs, you got to feed it, you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. And so he, he's got now, he's got now $6 million. So fortunately for you, you got some connections in the family. You had somebody that kind of went off the reservation, shall we say, and, and, uh, engaged in a life of crime, Against the Castro government. Well, you know, you can you can pick your friends, but you can't choose your family. And one of my, <laughs> I, I I had one of these lawyer cousins who uh, he was just always a bad seed from a very early age. Um, his mother tried to keep him under her thumb, but unfortunately, she didn't always succeed. Um, she sent him to Dartmouth, and he was. Uh, basically expelled for stealing books from the rare book library and selling them in New York. <laughs> now there's a crime I've never heard of. Stealing. <laughs> so how rare were the rare books? Uh, apparently uh, rather exceedingly rare. So the point is that um, 
when I'm asked, how am I going to launder this money? I, I think about cousin Peter. I say cousin lovingly because he's a cousin through marriage, not through blood. But now, he, he was just coming out of prison, having stolen $9 million from the Castro government in what the people in Miami call the Cuban coffee caper. Well, how did he not get killed? Because I don't think Fidel and Raul at that time were exactly uh, forgiving about people stealing money from this very small island nation who needed that kind of hard currency, right? That's true. Well, he uh, ended up afterwards uh, moving permanently to uh, Los Angeles to get away from the Cuban agents, which I'm sure were very uh, bent on doing something to him. But he had, frankly... uh, uh, connections all around the Caribbean. And so, of course, I asked him, who could I talk to about moving some cash? And did he did he turn you down at first? Did he say, yep, sure, come out and I'll help you? Well, I mean, was he not concerned about getting wrapped up in something and going back to prison? No, I think that uh, I think that he'd always been interested in things like that. I don't think he, you know, some people, when we talk about uh, people who change their lives, uh, he's not one of them. So. Uh, so uh, tell us now what happened. So you, I mean, this is the, this is pre-internet, pre-Zoom, pre-all this other stuff. So are you doing this over the phone, or do you go out and, and see him face-to-face? No, it, it's in person. And then what happened is that he turned me on to a lawyer down in the Caribbean whom I knew, and who was a very prominent advisor to the British government, and whom I had actually done business with in the past about... Uh, uh, tax-free manufacturing sites, because I had spent time in the Caribbean looking for properties where the local government would give you uh, up to a 90% tax holiday just to open up a little factory there. Now, was this all legitimate, or was this a cover for other uh, illicit funds? No, that was all legitimate from the 70s. Okay. So so here he turns me on to somebody who's clearly the most prominent lawyer in Anguilla, and says that I need to go down and talk to this gentleman and uh, form a couple of offshore corporations and uh, set up a bank account because if you're going to move money to the tax havens, you have to have your ducks in the row first. Now, did he know? And this this guy's name was uh, Billy Herbert, right? He was a government advisor to Anguilla, yes. Um, which is just for folks' reference, right? It's off the coast of Florida, you know, east of Puerto Rico. Um, did he know that this was illegitimate, or was he was he just taking you at your word that you're trying to form a legitimate corporation? Oh no, he he had a large book of business of clients who were uh, career criminals, and uh, because of his status, uh, he was never charged or arrested in the United States. What was his status? When you say that, what do you mean? Uh, because uh, besides being a lawyer in Anguilla, he was the foreign minister over in Saint Kitts. He was also a petition and had a law office over there. And besides being the foreign minister, he was the ambassador to the United Nations. He was the ambassador to the United States. He was the ambassador to the OAS. He was... Which is the Organization of American States for right. folks keeping track of acronyms. We have a rule. You can't use acronyms unless you define them. That's my Got job. It. That's my job. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, was, he was the self-described... Minister plenipotentiary without portfolio. He was deemed to be the next prime minister of of St. Kitts had he lived. Well, and he wow. would have obviously then had diplomatic immunity too, uh, which kind of gave him additional cover. Yes, and he was doing a lot of dirty work for a lot of dirty clients. Was he making a lot of money? Oh, yes. 
He, he had a num- number of properties in both countries. When you when you put some money in there, did he charge a percentage, or did he just make money off the cash while it was in the account? Uh, well, he actually was a, a shareholder in the offshore bank, mm-hmm. so I'm sure that he benefited from every dollar that my clients deposited. But, but did- of course, he took he took you know uh, he took rather uh, exorbitant fees to form offshore corporations and to provide services. Got it. There you go. So he charged his quote legitimate law practice would help you form shell corporations, and he would charge you a big fee for that. Yes, he also registered boats for me. Man, full service uh, law firm there. Um, <laughs> for so, full service criminal organization, that's what it is. Now, now, did the introduction from your cousin Peter was his name, right? Yes. Did that? Did, that got me in the door, yes. Okay, and so uh, did he do any additional vetting on you, or was it just simply was the intro enough for him to trust you? No, he knew me from before, so uh, he, I don't think there was any vetting going on. I think that uh, considering that uh, we always paid in cash and there were always U.S. dollars, uh, he was happy to take it. Happy to take it. So how long, of a, how long did it take you to set this up in order to launder the $6 million? In other words, how much, how much work was, did it take you know, until the day it got to where we have to now take the money down there? How long did that take you? Oh, just a few days, form the corporation, open the bank accounts, come back, and then get the clients ready for travel. Well, that's your next issue, right? Because <laughs> logistics is always an issue with moving cash. So tell us about the process now. How are you going to, who's going down there and how are you going to get people to Anguilla? Because I don't think United or American Airlines flies there on a regular basis, do they? No. Well, the thing is that, um, you know, what you have to do is you have to use the, the crudest and most primitive and fortunately most effective method of money laundering, basically bulk cash smuggling. Remember that all money laundering is always composed of three separate and distinct phases. The first one being placement. That's actually getting dirty cash into a bank where they don't ask questions. The second phase, of course, is called layering, where you move the money around globally so that it loses its taint and you also throw law enforcement off the trail if they're bothering you. Integration, of course, is where you bring the money back in and you build a hotel on Miami Beach and everybody thinks that you borrowed the money from some British corporation, but you actually borrowed the money from yourself. And there you have it, folks. A training class you just learned about Money Laundering 101. Yeah, and we advise you not to do it. Um, <laughs> you know, that's kind of our that's kind of our advice here. We don't want to be interviewing you as being on the other side of it. But but Ken, to your point though, I mean, but but that was back in the day too. Before uh, there was a lot of anti money anti monitoring. <laughs> I can't even say it. Anti money laundering AML. Now we'll use the acronym because I've defined the term AML. There wasn't a lot of AML in place at the time, was there? It was, I mean, actually fairly easy to move that kind of money. Well, the point is that uh, it was illegal to move $10,001 out of the United States without filling out a form with customs. Uh, You're right. The Money Laundering Control Act wasn't even enacted until 1986, and most of the heavy laws came out with the Patriot Act of 2001. So you're right. Uh, People would get charged for other crimes, but uh, uh, anti-money laundering was basically non-existent at that point. Yeah, and those reports that we're talking about, you'll see them called CTRs, currency transaction reports. So, it, you know, anything 10000 and above. And then they started getting what they called smurfing, breaking it up into smaller amounts, but, you know, collected together. So, I mean, we've just gotten to the point to where it's like uh, – Again, that, that that's reason for AML laws is that we needed we needed some clarity about what it did really take. But you were exploiting now a loophole in this. So, tell uh, how you know. First of all, 
Did you ever weigh, I mean, how much did $6 million weigh? Was it all in hundreds? Was it in 20s, a mixture? What was that cash in? And where was the guy keeping it at? I don't trust anybody. I got $6 million, dude. I'm sleeping in it in the safe with it. Nobody's getting near it. Well, some of the clients actually had a connection uh, to a, um, uh, basically a, a, a firm which exchanged currency in Canada. Uh, that they used to call free bucks because I, I won't give you their real name, but uh, they would take all their twenties and fifties and small bills and exchange them for crispy new $100 bills uh, and manage to get them down to Miami so that they could be sent out of the country. What kind of fee would but that entail? Yeah. But basically uh, it, it has to do with uh, smuggling large denomination bills because otherwise the, the weight will just kill you. Yeah. Go ahead, Steve. I was going to say, what kind of percentage would they charge for free bucks? Uh, they, they were just charging a few points, but uh, frankly, I'm sure they knew what was going on, and most of the commissions were paid in cash. So, it, you know, uh, Canada was so much more freewheeling than the United States back then. But no trouble getting the that now you got the $100 bills coming back into the U.S., no trouble getting those across the border, or did they use the same means that you're getting ready to tell us about? I, I, I certainly don't think they went through customs at, in Buffalo. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Niagara Falls. <laughs> okay, yeah. so so then we so we got the clients with the money, and of course, uh, I go back again to cousin Peter and say, "Listen, you know, I need transport." And he says, "Well, go up to go up to Fort Lauderdale Executive, which is a a business airport, jet port, and go see a guy by the name of Harvey Hop, who's a World War II vet, bomber pilot, and he'll fly you anywhere with anything as long as you don't carry drugs." So I went up and engaged his services, a $7,500 round trip to Anguilla and back. And then I brought the clients in, and uh, they were, of course, dressed like traffickers. You know, they had a lot of gold and a lot of casual clothes. And I said, no, no, we're going down on a business trip to Puerto Rico. You need to look like businessmen. So let's get, let's look good. Let's be wearing blazers and suits and ties and, and look presentable and look like we really are going to some legitimate enterprise. And that includes the females too. And then of course, people say, what do you mean females? Well, in that business, if you're bloodthirsty enough to succeed, you can be equal opportunity. So our, our human resources chief happened to have been a female. Uh, that meant that she was hiring crews out of Fort Lauderdale to go on board the smuggling boats. Now, oh, who, okay. Who was she? She was a, a young lady by the name of Christine Marie Dickinson. Uh, and how did she get involved in this? Did she go to, to she a was always school? A, she, no, she was, a, she was a Connecticut boat person who just gravitated, like everybody else, to Fort Lauderdale and ended up on the other side of the law. Hmm. And, and she wormed her way into Robert Miller's heart, right? Because Robert had a different girlfriend until Christine showed up, right? No, well, Christine was uh, was Gruner's girlfriend. Oh, Gruner, I meant Gruner, yeah. But um, but uh, you show up one time, and now he's got Christine instead of a prior girlfriend, right? He's he's got uh, well, the, the, their association was not uh, romantic. It was strictly oh, okay. business, strictly business. And the seventy five hundred dollars. Now, what kind of aircraft are you flying for that? Uh, the old the old standby, you know, Learjet twenty five. <sighs> Not bad. Not a bad way to travel. <laughs> and how long of a trip did it take? How, how long of a trip was it to? Because you had to land. We were talking earlier. There's no refueling on Anguilla, so you landed at Saint Martin, which is the Dutch side of it, as you yeah. were saying. Right. How long of a trip from Miami to uh, Saint Martin? Two and a half hours uh, at uh, cruising speed, 
Not, and they were not, they, they were also nice enough to let us sit in the uh, in the uh, in the pilot's chair and uh, fly it for a few minutes each, which I thought was kind of fun. Plus the sc- the scenery flying over that water is just oh yeah, unbelievable. the blue water. Oh, it's beautiful. So, but tell us about this Harvey. So, I mean, you're paying seventy five hundred dollars, but let's let's because this is your first trip. And you're you're not. I mean, did you do a test run at all with like a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand, or did you just go all in and say we're taking the whole six million first trip? Let's go. Yeah, and that was just half of what we could have brought. So therefore, we went ahead and uh, you know, if if you're not uh, assertive, you don't get anywhere in this world. So he actually had twelve million to launder instead of six. There was there was the it was it was actually this his his group. That had the six million. In other words, some of his employees and associates were along as well. Okay. So they all so combined, they combined their proceeds, just like correct. That's right. Just like right. The, the the cocaine distributors do, they'll combine loads so that if it gets taken off, one person doesn't take all the hit. Right. You you diversify the risk. You know, right. it's, a, it's a business, right? How do you right. diversify your risk? So, but tell us about this first trip down there. So you're, how did go, go through, you know, you're getting these guys to get out of their um, standard stereotypical drug, you know, uh, trafficker, gold chains and everything. You're dressing them up as business people. Did they really look like business people? I mean, or is this like putting a suit on, um, it's like putting you know, stick um, on a pig. <laughs> yeah. No, a pig. You know, uh, most of them were were uh, clean cut Anglo's, and therefore uh, they looked fairly uh, legitimate. You know, they would have passed the scratch and sniff test at least initially. They weren't. Uh, we're not talking about uh, you know hardcore drogueros there, right? So yeah. So if you'd ask them about IBITDA, earnings before income and tax, right? They probably wouldn't have passed that, but at least they looked the part, right? So you're getting everybody on the plane. Walk us through now your first trip down there. You're bringing six million. You got everybody dressed up. How does this go? You just uh, throw them on board the plane and fly out of U.S. airspace. And in ten years of doing that, uh, uh, we were never intercepted or even queried once. Because remember, at that point, the the, the customs uh, service is so overloaded with their responsibilities that outbound fl- outbound flights, of course, which don't generate any duty are not going to get attention unless, uh, frankly, somebody starts making a lot of noise. But now you told us, explain to our listeners, uh, you know, you're, you file a flight plan for Puerto Rico, but that's not where you're going at all, is it? No, exactly. We're, we're, going, we're going right to Anguilla. And that and changing your flight plan doesn't uh, draw any suspicion from the radars or anything? Well, you know, St. Martin is a, a huge uh, tourist location. Most right. Americans go there to get sun, fun, and gamble, and uh, it's it's neither a, a drug trafficking nor drug transit uh, location. Not only that, but it's a European possession, so it it really got the attention it deserved. Right, right. And the whole point you're saying is you went down with cash, but you were bringing nothing back, so even if customs had decided to inspect you or your plane, you're coming back from a business trip. You've got nothing on you that indicates you've got anything illegal, right? Correct. No receipts, no nothing. Well, nice. but this first trip didn't go, I mean, so you're, you're getting ready to take off. What's your pucker factor? I mean, what are you most concerned about on this very first trip? Because you, you you might, late 10 years later, you got 10 years of experience, but this is day one for you. What's it like before you get ready to take off? It's 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 definitely high stress. It's It's kind of like when you're in Vietnam and you take off in a helicopter and you're not exactly sure if you're going to get shot at or not. Mm-hmm. 
so it's a it's it's a feeling of uh, of uh, it's it's a euphoric feeling of risk taking. Yeah, and you guys were having fun, but uh, Harvey Hop wasn't having some of this, right? I mean, he's an old cantankerous World War II bomber pilot. What does he do to try and get everybody's attention on that first flight? Well, at, at one point, uh, because the clients brought a lot of champagne with them and they're having a party back there, uh, he takes an old uh, aviator's trick, and that is uh, he basically rolls the plane in what we call a barrel roll. That's where you do a 360, and as long as you keep going, they're not even going to spill their champagne, but they're certainly going to wake up when they find themselves upside down. <laughs> and why, why did he do it, though? Uh, I think that he, he thought that they were being disruptive. Uh, he was he he had never been into Anguilla's t- tiny little airfield before, and it was a short field. Uh, he was overflying the field at a low altitude to see if the runway was pitted or corroded, or if there were a bunch of chickens running across there that he's going <laughs> to run into on arrival. Uh, and there were a bunch of crashed airplane at the end of the field. Oh, oh, well, that's, that's not good. That's a fine. How do you do? Welcome to yes, Anguilla. Right. <laughs> Welcome to Anguilla. If you happen to crash, just park your aircraft at the end of the yeah, runway. Do it at the end. So he, he does that barrel roll. So you get everybody's attention. What What is your thought? So when he's doing this barrel, roll, do you think, oh my God, we're crashing. We're going to be one of those aircraft. No, I just thought it was kind of like a, it was an ingenious way of instilling discipline. that's a very diplomatic way to say it and and i want to go back to one thing you said too about being an adrenaline junkie people are probably thinking what the hell is wrong with people like this that would you know are willing to take that much of a risk not only with your life but maybe your freedom so i mean is that is that a carryover from uh from your days in vietnam or did you just grow up that way or you just you need some professional help what is it well i i I found in the 10 years that I was involved in this business, that a lot of the people who were involved in positions of, uh, of I guess you'll call that leadership, were, were Vietnam veterans. I also found that a bunch of the people that were trying to catch me in law enforcement were also Vietnam veterans. And, and as such, you know, it's kind of hard to be down on the farm after you've seen Paris. And that's basically what happens is that if somebody is out there in the real world in a high-risk enterprise, uh, becoming an accountant after that isn't going to make it. Yep. Yeah, once you get addicted to the adrenaline, it's hard to go back to uh, a day job. And we kind of we understand that we know where you're coming from. And, I, and I'll just tell you, I need professional help. That's why I do it or did it. <laughs> Yeah, I quit, you know, but the other thing too is I quit skydiving without a parachute. So, you know, you only do that once. So, but, uh, but let's, so you get this first trip and you land there with the $6 million. What goes, what happens now? You land anybody from anybody there from customs, from the police, anybody check you or inspect you at all? Oh, absolutely. And uh, once they see what we have, they say, close it up. Don't let anybody see it. And, you know, I later realized it's because all this dirty money had created a middle class in a country in which everybody either was a fisherman or worked as a maid in a hotel or had to go to Puerto Rico to find work. We created a middle class in the financial services industry. So they wanted this money in the door. Because somebody who had been a fisherman before was a teller at this bank, and he had a little Toyota outside, and he had a nice house for his family. So we had created an an underground economy there. That's you know, and that's true. And and I I think a lot of people we may be a little spoiled here in the United States as as well as some of the more developed countries around the world. 
where you just have distinct or you have multiple socioeconomic classes. But in, in countries like that, and this was true in Colombia back in the days when I was there, you had two classes, two economic classes. That was the haves and the have-nots. Right. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, I don't want to say neat. I guess interesting would be a better word to hear, you know, and explain to our listeners how that middle class was created. Because you've, you've actually uh, benefited the people that were on the have-not side to a certain degree, although it was from an illegal way of doing it. I'm not sure where to go from there. I just found that really interesting that you know it Steve, had a positive effect. Steve gets a thought and it trails off sometimes, but I think he's got a good point. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we so we go out of the custom shed, and there's our friend Billy Herbert there with a couple four wheel drive jeeps because the roads are uh, somewhat primitive there. They're not all paved, and uh, we drive to the capital of Anguilla, which is called the Valley. And if we go into a shopping center, which probably would be better suited to a British sci-fi movie, because there's nothing for sale there. Hey, Ken, and real quick too, how big is the how big is the six how many how many duffel bags or how big is your load of six million dollars? Uh, it's it's just a number of uh, a couple duffel bags, and uh, it's not it it it's not obscenely large. It's it's a couple people are carrying hefty bags, and that's it. It's not, it's not demonstratively huge that would attract attention. Okay. So you go to this, uh, you go to this uh, British sci-fi shopping mall, nothing's for sale. Wh- wh- but what is, what's open and what is for sale there? Well, it's, it's all banks and lawyers' offices and trust companies and financial services firms where they actually will set up a telephone and a system for you where they'll answer the phone and make it look like you actually have a business and you're operating there when you've never even been there. And then we go into uh, uh, the offshore bank, and of course, uh, Mr. Herbert was a substantial shareholder, and the president of this bank had been uh, hired away from Chase Manhattan at a rather high salary. And we put all this money through the money laundering and counterfeit detectors and pull out a couple copies of uh, fake hundreds, and the money all goes into certificates of deposit in the name of all these shell companies. And they are actually at rather high rates of interest because back then, U.S. interest rates were up around 15%. So this is substantial return. And um, the, the dates in which these things mature are intentionally staggered so that if the clients needed cash to buy product, they wouldn't actually incur... They wouldn't have it all wrapped up in just one transaction. You'd have actually have some cash that's liquid. Yes, and better than that, they wouldn't incur an early withdrawal penalty. They're businessmen, remember? They may be businessmen of an illegal substance, but they are businessmen. You know, that's, that's a little ironic, too, that not only are they trying to hide the illegal gotten gains, the money, you know, and try to wash it. That's why we call it money laundering, trying to, to pass it through uh, various accounts to create the appearance that it's legitimate income. But they also want to make interest on their illegal gotten gains. <laughs> when and is they don't want to pay penalties. That? They don't yeah, want to pay right. fees. How do I maximize my ROI, return on investment? Yeah, when, yeah when's enough enough? Okay, well, it's all over, and then uh, I I follow Cousin Peter's instructions. I go across to the other side of the island, and we have uh, we ask for uh, lobster, and they put on the snorkel and the fins, and they dive in the bay, and they bring the lobster up. Oh, that's and we, nice. And we, and we, and we, they barbecue it on a fifty-five gallon drum, and we eat fresh lobster, drink French champagne from Saint Martin, and then we fly back home. 
Yeah, you know, as gov- as government employees, we did the same thing, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you might have ate something out of the water. It was a floating, you know, uh, yeah, you know, Big Mac, baby, ro- how, uh, baby Ruth. Yeah. So, how long did that? Uh, how long did your trip take from the time you took off from Miami, do your transactions, and come back? How long? How much time did you guys spend on this first trip? They're always the same day trips, you know, two and a half hours down, a couple hours there, a couple, two and a half hours back. You always want to come back the same day. You do not want to have any overnight uh, issues. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, if this was actually a legitimate trip down on business, uh, what would be the reason for coming back? Uh, we're not, uh, you know, we're, we're not bringing all sorts of presentations with us. It's a, it's as low profile as we can. It sounds just like a routine day trip. Uh, also remember that if there were any issues, uh, you're not allowed to land overnight in the Bahamas. So if something ever happened, what well, we would be exposed. And remember, most of the flight is over the Bahama chain. Yeah, you're just, you're, so you're avoiding bringing attention to yourself. Yes, and we also don't want to be uh, staying overnight somewhere where we can come to the attention of local authorities. That's that's right. very interesting because it's it would be so easy. Well, nowadays it would, it seems like it'd be easier to represent yourself as there on vacation if you did stay overnight. But I guess just one night wouldn't be real a real vacation. Yeah, it's kind of like you watch those TV shows, uh, you know, with Customs and Border Protection or other stuff, and people are coming in. They say, "I'm just coming here for vacation." How long are you staying? They fly all the way from Europe to stay here for two days and go back. It's like, yeah, yeah that's not much of a vacation. Yeah, doesn't pass the common sense meter. Yeah. So, but but Ken, but but you're down there, so you go down, uh, you do that, and you fly back the same day. Um, when when you landed back at that airport the first time, what were you expecting uh, to happen? Oh no, I, I figured it was just going to be uh, uh, just a walkthrough, and it was. So customs just checked you out and said, "Hey, you're good to go," and then let you back in the country. Exactly. And what was your uh, what was your payment for this first money laundering uh, oh, adventure? I, I got a sports car out of it. A sports car. <laughs> you didn't charge a percentage. No. <laughs> uh, well, I told you, this was never about a maximizing uh, income. It was about the whole adventure. Excitement. Well, what kind of car did you get? Uh, a, a Fiat Spider convertible. It's nothing too expensive, nothing that was going to be marking me as being uh, a high roller. Well, did, did, wow. did Gruner or Bob or any of those guys look at you and like, WTF, dude, you can make so much more money than just a little car? No, they, 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 I, don't think, I don't think anybody thought that there was any issue about uh, cost or shaving cost because there were other trips in the future in the offing. Yeah. So nobody okay. cared. But but after after I returned, you see, that's when the magic started, because a couple hours after we left Anguilla, a courier service came down from New York, picked up the whole $6 million, and took it to a bank in Manhattan into the offshore bank's correspondent account. So it was no longer physically, the money was no longer physically there. It was physically in the bank's accounts in New York, where it might be able to lend it out at a really obscene rate of interest to some Fortune 500 company or somebody else that needed $6 million then. So this $6 million in cash goes from Miami to uh, Anguilla, from Anguilla on a courier service. How does the cur- So how does the courier service get it from Anguilla back into the United States legitimately? Or are they, are they, do they have a route that takes them under the radar. 
No, no, no. That's that's legitimate because remember that the banking industry uh, allows huge amounts of cash to be transited as long as it's the bank's money and not a client's money uh, without serious problems. It's such a loophole that we always have. Do we still have it to today? Yes. And, you know, and remember that uh, cash being smuggled into Mexico ends up coming back into the United States. Wow. Well, we'll have, we'll have to get into that in a little bit, um, because the reason we're spending a little time setting this up, because this is the one thing that sets it up for you then, because once you do this and once word gets out that Ken's a you know, righteous guy, uh, you start getting some additional clients too, right? But the one very interesting thing, though, you mentioned in our pre-call and also in the book, you never kept records. You, you never wrote anything down, and obviously for a reason, but... Al Capone had his bookkeeper. You know, Pablo had his bookkeepers. You know, why did you not write anything down? I mean, weren't you afraid of losing track of clients' money or a transaction or historically going back and saying, hey, no, this is what happened and this is what we did? Why no records? Uh, Because I, I cut my teeth as a bank lawyer and I knew how damaging those records could be. Not only did I keep no records, I kept no American bank accounts for several years. Where were your accounts at? It was it was cash transactions or paid through a third party. And where did you and, store your cash? Yeah, offshore. Yeah. Anguilla. Yes. <laughs> is that the ho? Is that the Jose Lopez uh, account? Yes. What's the most amount of money you had in that account? Oh, oh, um, I guess uh, seven figures, low seven figures. But remember, but remember, I'm spending money as fast as I can because I know in my heart of hearts that this isn't going to go on forever. And one day it's all going to come to an end. And therefore, uh, you can't take it with you. What were you blowing most of the money on? Uh, well, I, I took an awful lot of European trips. Uh, I, I actually was collecting. Uh, I, I became an antique collector. I collected original Art Deco from the 1930s. Because remember, Miami in the 1980s had a love affair with uh, Art Deco. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was my social grace, was that I could go to uh, an antique store somewhere in Europe or the United States and find an original item that uh, would catch my fancy and which I could, of course, uh, pay for cash and bring home. So my house was uh, basically it looked like a museum. And the other thing, too, is you deliberately changed your rates all the time, too. Why? You never could tell who's going to be talking to somebody else on the other side of the phone. So therefore, you know, remember that uh, in, in most of these cases, it's never, it's never the client who's the one that informs on you. It's, a, it's an associate of the client who maybe has a criminal problem. And in an effort to reduce his sentence, he goes ahead and he flips on anything he knows. So I just kept changing the game. So I was never known for doing one thing for any period of time. Uh, I would form corporations, use them, and lose them. Remember that the big problem in the United States and abroad is that if you form a corporation and you only keep it for a couple months, you never have to fulfill any of the reporting requirements. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it, it ends up being formed by a bunch of lawyers and legal secretaries, and your name never comes up or your client's name ever comes up. And the next year when you don't pay them nominal fee, it's dissolved. So how many shell corporations would you have going at any one time? Well, they were, uh, I just kept forming them down there all the time. I've, I formed a bunch of them up here. And matter of fact, if you go look on the Florida corporate records, you'll still see a whole bunch of them because they still show up in there. And uh, 
uh, you'll be, uh, you know, I, I use the number of um, uh, the offshore companies. I use the number of uh, Anguilla geographical areas. I called one of them, and you'll like this one, uh, basically, uh, Morgan, I called it Tropic Lightning Limited. <laughs> After the 25th Infantry Division. But how, yeah. did, how did you keep all that straight in your mind if you're not keeping any paper records? Because they were all in Billy Herbert's office in Anguilla. Ah. Oh. So, so, but back to Steve's point, how many shell corporations were open at any one time for you to move all this money? Uh, easily half a dozen at a time, and then you'd form new ones. And then uh, you, or you, or you would change the names because the clients were rather paranoid about being discovered. Matter of fact, some, but what some clients would do is they would go ahead and, and form a new corporation and not even tell you, and they would move their money to a to a different account, so that if something ever happened to me, that they, you know, they, there would never be a way in which they could be identified. I, it's a, that's it's amazing to me. I you. I know you, our listeners can't see me, but I'm sitting here with an incredulous look on my face because Morgan and I are running this little podcast, and Javier and I have a couple little uh, businesses, and it's all I could do to keep up with those on on a spreadsheet, <laughs> on multiple spreadsheets. I can't imagine having that much money coming in, being accountable, all those offshore accounts. You must have a very, very good brain for, for banking. I also had to memorize phone numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing written down, yeah. huh? Not when you can help it. Hmm. Well, and that's, by the way, that's uh, when we were talking with uh, Jeff Moore, Steve, uh, on his work on Leo Sharp. That was the one thing that led them to the big guy down in Florida was a single phone number written on some pocket litter out of Leo's. Uh, oh, yeah. Not to give up. Leo's, not to uh, give up investigative means and methods, but pocket litter is a gold mine sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm telling you, pocket litter. And, you know, as, as, as uh, dealing in the law there, too, uh, Ken. Hey, but, but Ken, this kind of. So now let's start getting into, you're, you're doing this, you say you're going for 10 years, but there's one particular client that kind of begins, puts you on the radar and kind of, I don't want to say starts your downfall, but starts bringing, but Steve, I see yeah, you got a question Yeah, just before we there. go, because I know where you're going, this is getting really interesting, but so you're, you're moving this money. Did you give up your legitimate law practice? No, no. I worked four days, four days, Monday to Thursday, and then Friday, everybody thought that I would go overseas to gamble, which of course is not outside the realm of possibility from for young lawyers. And I'd be on a plane to St. Martin, and I'd probably have uh, some financial instruments in my chest pocket, or maybe even $100,000 in cash, which could very easily go through the then very poor surveillance system at the airport. And then I'd fly to St. Martin, and then I'd take a little uh, ferry across the bay to Anguilla, and to get a taxi and go see Billy Herbert and go to the bank and do my business and uh, come back on Saturday. And everybody thought I was gambling then and I had a bad gambling habit, but uh, wasn't doing any such thing. Well, you you had a gambling habit. You're just gambling with yeah. your freedom. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and one other thing I want to follow through. You mentioned uh, earlier that you worked with Billy Herbert until he died. When did he die and what from? Well, uh, Billy Herbert represented... Uh, a lot of different types of uh, criminal activities. And he represented, uh, you know, the Irish Republican Army uh, raises money in New England amongst uh, the faithful and launders it and, and uses, used it at that time to buy weapons. Well, um, there came a time when some money that was in an account became missing. And uh, he was blamed for it. 
although it turns out years later that it was MI6 that stole the money in the UK. And and as such, uh, one Sunday he went out on his yacht with uh, about 10 people, including a couple of his children, a bunch of Brits who were visiting, a couple other people, and they disappeared off the face of the earth. The boat was never, never, they were never located again. Uh, and of course, um, you know, I would get questions for years about what happened to Billy Herbert, what happened. And one day, about 15 years later, I'm giving a lecture and somebody from DEA comes up to me and asks me a couple questions about a couple people. And then he tells me that uh, they know where Billy Herbert is. He and all these people are buried underneath a um, a pool in Basseterre, the capital of St. Kitts. I did note later that a couple of uh, uh, career criminals in St. Kitts are now doing life in an American prison, and I guess you could connect the dots. Right. Did did they disappear while you were still doing business or after you'd already been arrested? Oh, afterwards. Afterwards. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, because the IRA, we actually had a couple of my friends from New Scotland Yard, and one of them actually worked the bombing of Lord Mountbatten that the uh, IRA had blown up his yacht. Uh, yeah, so the IRA, you, they, 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 yes, you know, those lads, they, they want their money. You know, they don't want you taking their money. Um, but let's let's go back to your, because like Steve said, this is kind of, and I'm glad you brought that up too. And one more point before we move on. D- during this time, your girlfriend was Marguerite Green. She was a police detective, right? Was it with Miami-Dade or was it with the county or who was she Miami with? Miami-Dade. Did you, did you not have any concerns that she, that she was that there was going to be a line that you were going to cross that she says okay I this far but no farther I can't this this I can't uh, countenance you know I I have to do something did you, did you ever have those discussions or how did you keep this don't ask don't tell Chinese firewall between you guys because at some point I'm thinking even even going to parties and stuff even though she says she was just a county employee at some point somebody's going to go she's a cop what are you doing with a cop yeah. Ken well but when you when you live in that world. You only associate with people in that world. I wasn't going to be going to any kind of straight party, or I wasn't going to be going to somewhere where uh, everybody didn't know everybody else, because the, the secrecy involved means that you live in a very tiny environment. You don't trust anybody outside of the organization. So, But no, we, that was our arrangement. It was literally, you know, you, you do your business, I'll do mine. Did you share proceeds with uh, her? Other than common expenses, no, she didn't benefit from it. Okay, but the, and so, but her career continued to yes. develop, which I think is ironic and funny. Can you well, explain she, that? She ended up becoming a, an economic crime detective, and then she went back and got a master's and became a police psychologist. And did she ever analyze her relationship <laughs> with you to say why did I put up with this well, for so you know, long? Or people anything? who grew up in the sixties. You know, there was there was a, a totally different morality at that point. You weren't going to be hard and fast and stiff about uh, about anything having to do with uh, what we then called victimless drugs. Well, because I just thought that that, you know, it, it's kind of and I know that goes into your script that you wrote, too. A lot of that, too, is it provides some drama, which is, you know, at any one point. But the other thing, too, is you guys could just be out together going to a store and somebody could go, hey, who's that with you? You know, it, it could be one of those random things. but. Let's continue this trajectory because you now end up getting involved with the client that really, like I say, this starts the beginning of the end. You may not have seen it at the time, but this is really kind of the trajectory. Would it be, was it George Cranson-Bloom? Is that kind of where you started getting on the radar and things started yeah, changing was, for you and your business? I was referred to him by some of my original clients. The original group that uh, I had done work for 
uh, they started doing business with George, and he was a Parisian uh, orphaned in the Holocaust who had a company running out of Miami Beach called Boats and Vessels from Asia to America. He was bringing Chinese junks into the United States from Taiwan. He had a Taiwanese wife. But when those vessels would go through the Panama Canal, it sounds like a bunch of them picked up a little extra cargo. Plus, he was running several <laughs> several boats, uh, whether they were power boats or, or sailboats, in the Caribbean with cocaine. So how long into your 10 years of money laundering did you run into George? At what point of your uh, uh, career in that aspect did you get introduced to him? I guess in the first three or four years. So you had kind of a long-term relationship with him, right, for six or seven years? Uh, well, he, he, he did spend a lot of that time in custody, but yes. <laughs> so how far, so, um, but, but like you say, they took on some extra, it was this extra cargo that actually ended up causing problems for you, right? Because um, one of his vessels was detained at some point, right? And this is where they found the Coke, and this is where your interaction yeah. then with the ship's captain starts? Yeah, that was that was a but that was a, a, a just a bold smuggling trip of an, a sailboat coming up to the Miami River. So when that vessel was intercepted by customs and uh, opened up, uh, you know, there was a huge cargo of cocaine in it, and that's the first time that he was actually exposed to uh, risk of being charged with uh, trafficking. How much cocaine? Uh, I, at least five hundred uh, kilos, probably more. And. and- why was he associated with that boat? Was he the owner? Uh, he was, uh, yes. He was. It, it traced, came back to him, and his, the crew came back to him, too. So he didn't do it. So was it in design? Was it intended to have that Coke on that vessel? It sounds like, you know, if he wanted some plausible deniability, having a boat that you own with a crew that you own and putting 500 kilos of Coke on there wasn't the way to do it. Okay, he didn't own it directly, but it had been seen at his marina at the South Shore, so therefore, I don't think it would have been too hard to uh, to connect the dots. But at the same time, of course, uh, he was associated with a number of the people on the crew who were also French. And he was he was already known by law enforcement, right? Yes. Oh, he was he was their number one target for a while there on Miami Beach. The Miami Beach uh, Vice and Narcotics Squad, they were, you know, consumed with arresting him. Uh, we should we should talk to Don Johnson and uh, Ricardo Tubbs and see if they ever ran across him, Steve. <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Sonny sorry. <laughs> Crockett, I mean, yeah, Sonny Crockett, yeah. Because uh, you wanted to be, Steve, I don't know if you know this, Kim, but Steve wanted to be Sonny Crockett. When he first got assigned down there in uh, Miami, he had the gold chains, the long flowing hair, and wore the linen, uh, cotton, you know, white jackets and no Actually, socks. Actually, that was Chris Feistel, but we'll have him on another issue. <laughs> we'll have yeah, him on another I mean, episode. <laughs> Hey, well, Kim, but let's talk about this because the captain's name was uh, Jean Luc, right? Uh, the the the, uh, uh, the the captain of that vessel was uh, his his real name was Pierre Dumont. Pierre Dumont. So, uh, and in the book, right, it was Jean Luc. So Pierre Dumont. But this is where this, this is kind of the first time you get on law enforcement's radar, right? Because you are now working with George to represent Pierre in a criminal proceeding, right? Yes. Well, it was the you know the uh, he was arrested uh, by state authorities. I, why I don't know, but uh, the judge set the bond at twelve million dollars. A couple of days later, reduced it to three million, and a couple of days later, dismissed all charges. Yeah, we're going to walk through that. That's that's like, uh, um, but let's walk through that because 
up, up until this point, do you believe that you were ever on law enforcement's radar uh, anywhere being targeted or being looked at prior to uh, Pierre? Oh, yeah. I think, I think for years they were looking at me, but there were no connections. How did they, how did they get onto you then? And when you said they were looking at you, were you just coming up uh, in investigations or how yes. did they come across your name? Well, I, you know, they, they may have seen me associating with some of those clients, but some of those clients had been lifetime pot smugglers. So they never had a legitimate uh, occupation. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that my name intersected with theirs. And you know, yeah, Morgan, you know as well as I do. If you see uh, even a legitimate attorney, and and this is bad to stereotype them, but if you have known criminals dealing with them, even on legitimate transactions like cars, houses, properties, whatever, we immediately think they're suspect. And you know what? Most of the time, we're right because why would a criminal go to you know, a, a straight attorney who might rat them out once they discover what they really do for a living. This is the end of episode 14, part one. This Thursday, part two will come out, and trust me, you're going to want to hear what Ken Rijok has to say. In the meantime, visit us at patreon.com slash game of crimes. We've got a ton of great content over there. We just released our Q&A for September, and we have episode four of The Real DEA Narcos talking about The Real DEA Narcos and The Real Hunt for Pablo Escobar. Also, come visit us at our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We have a ton of material over there, including our email list. Visit us on Facebook and Instagram at Game of Crimes Podcast, at Twitter, at Game of Crimes. Also, we've got a new merchandise store just launched, gameofcrimespodcast.shop. That's gameofcrimespodcast.shop. A lot of new material there, shirts, mugs, and guess what? For some of you that asked, even a shower curtain. This Thursday, remember now, episode 14, part two, Ken Rijok is the laundry man. Stay tuned.